Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 495. Back uh, talking about the basic English fireplace. This episode is going to be encapsulated with the beginning. The primitive fireplace. In primitive habitations, the fireplace was the central hearth, the focus around which the walls were built. Hence the necessity for a screen to protect this bonfire from the wind, as well as the person from the draft, may reasonably be considered to have been an important factor in the development of the round form of house, which is thought to have been the earliest form where a fireplace was attached. In the excavated mounds of the British Marsh Village discovered near Gladstonsbury in Somerset, in 1892 and 1893, hearths of clay were found in the middle of the circular wooden huts. These had been added to form time to time, and in one hut, the two uppermost were of stone. It is probable that the smoke from these hearth fires escaped through the door or through the hole in the roof, as in the cabins of the Irish and the hovels of the Scotch or in the modern coal burner's hut. This village is thought to belong to a period preceding the Roman occupation and was inhabited by people who practiced metalworking and the crafts of the weaver and potter. Every mound appeared to contain a roughly circ- circular fireplace. The Romans, during their sojourn in Britain, heated the rooms of their, their villas by means of hypercast, the movable braziers, as we would call them, in which charcoal was the main fuel used. The remains of these hypercrasts show them to have been constructed on an elaborate system by which the floors and sometimes the walls of various rooms were actually heated by hot air from a chamber beneath. Almost like what uh, sometimes we think of as uh, the heating that took place in certain rooms in Bath, England, and some of the bathhouses. The heat generated in a furnace which was stoked from the outside of the building was carried through these chambers and flues under the floors and in some instances up rectangular earthenware tubes built on the face of the wall to which they were secured by iron holdfast. These tubes connected at the bottom with the hypocrast as in Northley and Oxen The floor of the chamber is, in this instance, supported by piers, seven-inch square, built of tiles, one and a quarter inch thick, at distances varying from ten inches upwards apart, and is formed of large flat stones resting upon the piers. These stones are covered with stucco, which forms the bed for a mosaic pavement. As the walls above ground of these Roman villas have been destroyed, there is nothing to show how the smoke from the furnaces was carried off, or whether they were provided with chimneys at all. The question whether the ancient Romans built chimneys is one which has been much debated by writers and researchers on this subject. But an inspection of the remains of their villas leads to the opinion that they were well acquainted with the action of smoke and heated air. At Northley, behind the front row of pipes, others were found at intervals, 
and these were discolored with smoke from which the others were almost free of smoke. It is conjectured that the original ones may have been opened at the top for the discharge of smoke at the eaves of the building, and that the front row, being closed at the top, had no draft through them and consequently had little discoloration. The Roman method of heating, introduced by a people of luxurious habits and accustomed to a warmer climate than the British, does not appear to have been copied by the Britons or by their successors, the Saxons, for whose house is built mainly on wood and plaster. It would have been quite unsuitable. No chimneys are seen in representation of Saxon houses. The fire was kindled on a hob of clay in the center of a large dining hall open to the roof, through which the smoke found its way out a hole up through an open door or window. The term hearthman is significantly applied to those familiar retainers who sat at the same fire as their lord and at night retired to the same dormitory. A bed made of rushes and covered by a coarse kind of cloth manufactured in the country called brycum is placed along the side of the room and they all in common lie down to sleep. The fire continues to burn by night as well by day at their feet and they receive much comfort from the natural heat of the persons lying near them. As wood and peat were the fuel used, the inconvenience from smoke would not have been so great if it had been coal that was burning. The central position was the most efficient for diffusing heat in the apartment, or as we would call it, a room, and for buildings mainly constructed of timber in the safest as the most preventative of fires. In the consideration of this subject, it may be found more convenient to deal with the central hearth fire first rather than to combine it chronologically with the recessed wall fireplace, although both continued in use almost to the end of our own time. The central position for the hearth fire was retained for use in the hall or house place of one story, open to the roof, long after fireplaces were made in the walls and of other rooms. The smoke originally had to find its way out through the unsealed roofs, under the eaves, or through unglazed windows. But when an advance was made in the direction of domestic comfort and the latter were filled with glass, shutters or other substitutes to keep the wind and rain out, some better means of escape for it had to be devised. This this want was meant by the introduction of the smoke turret or louver. So let's talk about the smoke louver. An aperture was formed in the roof, vertically over the hearth, generally octagonal in shape, but sometimes hexagonal or square, from which rose the turret with openings to the outside air, formed so as to exclude the rain and let the smoke out. The French word for opening is louver, gave the name for those turrets and to the louver boards, which are still used for a similar purpose. The smoke louver appears to have been an introduction of the latter half of the 13th century, as the hall of Stokesbury Castle, belonging to the earlier half, is not provided with one. The unglazed circular openings in the gabled windows at the sides providing a convenient means of exit for the smoke. But in the orders, 
given by Henry III for alterations to these buildings belonging to him, frequent mention is made of this feature. They occur in a series of records in Latin called the Liberate Rolls, translations of which by H. T. Hudson Turner are given the first volume of Parker's Domestic Architecture. The Louvre is first referred to in the 32nd year of his reign, where the keeper of Woodstock is ordered to make a hearth of free stone, high and good, in the chamber above the wine cellar in the great court, and a great louvre over the said hearth, and two great louvres in the queen's chambers, and two glass windows in the the king's wardrobe. And again, the king to Godfrey, the list in orders, wainscot to be put above this, and a louvre to be made in the hall, there to carry away the smoke. Several louvres still remain in buildings of the 15th and 16th centuries, particularly in a hall in Lincoln College in Oxford, erected in 1437, which is in its original condition and is made of oak covered with lead. This hall has been furnished during the past century with a fireplace in one of the walls, so that the louvre is not now in use. But Parker, when writing on this subject in 1853, mentions that it had been used within the (coughs) recollection of some of the older fellows. The removal of the fire from the middle of the hall to the side was the subject of comment by Dr. Johnson, who, when visiting Oxford with Boswell in 1754, speaking of the form of the old halls, he says, In these halls the fireplaces were ancillary ways in the middle of the room till the wigs removed to all one side. The turret on the roof of Westminster Hall is stated by Parker to be an exact copy of the original. He gives an illustration of the interior of Abbott's Hall at Westminster School with the raised hearth, brazier, and louver above, which were sketched by Jewett before their removal in 1850. The louver of square form still remains there and can be seen. The firmerel, or louvre, originally over the great hall at Hampton Court, as described in Mr. Ernest's law guide to the palace, from existing old accounts, must have been an an object of some magnificence in the day. It was of three stages with openings alternatively glazed and trellised. Inside there were four pendants of oak and a carved rose crown standing on the crown wrought, This was gilded and on a blue ground. Outside there were numerous pinnacles on which were placed heraldic beasts and four lions and four dragons and four greyhounds, all of which were elaborately painted and bore gilded veins, while in a centerpiece was a great lion crowned, bearing a great vein. The accounts also mentioned hewing and setting and paving of the hearth in the king's new hall. It is probable that, as as wall fireplaces have been introduced into halls, the necessity for retaining many louvres has ceased, and on getting dilapidated to this point, most have been removed. Others, like the elaborate one over the hall at Trinity College in Cambridge, have been entirely filled with glass to act as a lantern only. At Elthin Palace, an internal construction of the louvre remains, but nothing externally the plan of it being an elongated hexagon. 
This method of carrying away the smoke provided the raison de terre for the picturesque architecture feature pleasantly breaking <clears throat> the skyline of the large hall roof, and its disuse is a loss for which it is sometimes difficult to find a substitute. So let's talk about the referdus. In the, the liberate roles of Henry III, referred to previously, the hearth under the great louvre was ordered to be a free stone, high and good, showing that the hearth was sometimes raised above the floor, as that in the hall of the hospital of St. Cross near Winchester, where a fire of charcoal was still occasionally made. At Pencurst Hent, the central hearth still exists. This is a brick-paved octagonal space, eight foot across, level with the floor, and surrounded by a low curb. On it stand the coupled anirons, connected by a billet bar supported in the middle. These andirons are of later date than the 14th century hall, as they bear the Phenom badge of the Sydneys to whom the manor was given by Edward VI. The smoke turret has been removed. Other fire dogs have been found, coupled in the same manner as those at Penhurst, which show the form to be one of great antiquity. One pair of these, described by the late J. Romley Allen, these very interesting pieces of wrought ironwork were dug up in the farm on Carrie Coldig near Bettyswad and is now in the possession of the Colonial Wynth Finch Museum. It is obviously for use in the central hearth and measures two, two feet, ten inches in width, and two feet, five and a half in height, and two vertical bars being one and a half inches square, and the billet bar two and a quarter inches deep by one and one-eighth inch wide. The loops up the sides of the uprights were probably for the purpose of resting the spit irons in the, for roasting purposes. These were absent at the Penhurst Dogs, as this building was provided with a kitchen adjoining the hall in which the cooking would have been done. So with that, we're going to cut out um, the, get the beginning of the English fireplace and, you know, laying down some, uh, some issues here, how it developed um, from being basically one great room to... Uh, with, you know, one, one great room with actually people lying there on the floor tending the fire all the time, uh, a very smoke-filled room, to uh, how the, this evolved into a chimney uh, that was moved to the side of the room or the ends of rooms. So, uh, and, and the, the last part of the, uh, what we just, the equation was, how do you vent this smoke out? So, we have the chimney and, and even... Uh, with the chimney up, we still need a venting system. So, and as we said, very few remain still. So some very interesting early beginnings of the fireplace. And of course, it all goes back to England and um, England probably 50 to 60 years before the French developed it. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist signing out. Thanks for listening. Pass uh, our episode on. <laughs>